Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. I had the privilege uh, a few weeks ago of um, hanging out with some friends that I went to, to undergrad uh, business school with because uh, we were talking about it's our 20 year coming up next year, uh, which is kind of crazy. And uh, I was thinking about uh, the, the first uh, job that I had coming out of school, how um, four months into the job, I was sort of realizing, oh, it's four months and nothing's changed. Because up to that point in my life, everything had changed every four months, right? Like you either had Christmas vacation or break or March break or you were working for the summer. Like really, since the time you entered school, things were always changing. And after four months, I realized, no, nothing's changing. I'm going to work for the rest of my life. <laughs> uh, what I didn't know then, which I'm kind of glad I didn't, was that the math on that was about 100,000 hours. Like I was going to work for 100,000 hours which I'm partway through. <laughs> and uh, maybe some of you are just beginning that. And I think I, I would have passed out if somebody had told me that at the time. Uh, some of you who commute, that's like 160,000 hours, but, um, or feels like that. And now wherever you are in the journey, whether you're coming to the end of that and you haven't been counting or you've been sort of writing on the wall and crossing them out, the days to come. I was thinking like work is this uh, sort of universal experience for, for, for all of us. No matter what you do for a living, whether you get paid for it or not, but which is what you do for most days of the week, the work. And, um, and I was thinking that for many of us, we feel like foreigners in our work. 
We probably have never used that word to describe it. But in a sense, to some degree, work or the workplace feels alien to us. Huffington Post, I read a, a survey that was done last year that 50% of Canadians say they feel like they don't fit in their workplace. Right? Feels foreign. I don't really belong here. Uh, there's all kinds of reasons for that. Maybe, maybe some of you, and, and you know, if, if, if the stats are true, whatever, like, maybe some of us feel like that because um, the work is just uh, is, is not something that we feel like is suited to us. Like it's not something we do well. Maybe we feel like we're failing at it, or maybe we just don't enjoy it at all. Maybe the, the workplace that we're in is kind of toxic, and so we just feel like, oh, I don't belong. Or maybe I, I had a boss who, um, maybe some of, you have this, some of you have this physical reaction when you walk into work. And I remember, like, in my first year, I had this boss, and she had this laugh that whenever she laughed, I had this, like, physical reaction to it. Um, and it, was this, it wasn't just because of the laugh, but she was kind of, she wasn't that nice. Like, I remember <laughs> running into her in the cafeteria one day, and she, or in the office, I was getting coffee. She said, oh, how's your weekend? I said, oh, I was on vacation for two weeks. I didn't even notice. Ha, ha, ha. I was like okay, like, yeah, I was gone for two weeks. Now, maybe there's a comment on me or not. I don't know. But every time I heard the laugh and I could hear it through the whole office, everything in me was just like this kind of thing. Maybe you have people in your workplace that you, you just kind of have a physical, visceral reaction to it. It doesn't feel like maybe you, you, you get in the car after you realize, oh, I've been, I've been doing this all day. Like, I'm tense. I mean, I've talked to you, and many of you, I know there's, there's experiences like that in our work, reasons why we feel like this just isn't just a fit. It's not a fit with who I am. And maybe if, if we're privileged to be in the other 50%, where we say, no, I, I like my work. I think we would all know and, and say that, yeah, but it comes at a price. Like work exacts a toll from me. There is sweat. There's tears. I mean, some of you, there's blood, like some of the work that you do. There's a, a sense in which sometimes um, we feel like we are sacrificing so many other things that are really important to us to this thing that dominates our life. Even if we feel like, you know, it's one thing to, to drive an hour and a half to a place you don't even want to go. I mean, that's, that's tough. But even if you do like it, that sometimes, many of us, we flop down on the couch at the end of the week and we go, man, like, should I be doing this? Should I be doing something else? Like, is it worth all that I'm giving to this? And I think because of that, because of the 100,000 hours, right, because of the how many hours you do this in a week, if you're one of those people that feels like you don't fit, but even if you do, but you know there's a toll that it takes on you, man, you know everything else is affected in your life by the work that you do, right? Everything else is affected, like your physical body is affected. We know this now, that there are, they say the number one reason that people take days off work is for physical reasons is because of changes in the workplace, right? Like, so you're, you get sick, and some of you have been through that where you've literally felt and gotten colds or fevers or whatever because of so much instability or, or uh, reductions or, or uh, headcount cuts and stuff like that, waiting for the ax to fall or environments that are toxic or difficult or just even the, some of you are in manual labor where it uses up your body, you know that. It also affects, you know, if you don't enjoy what you're doing and you're doing it for so many hours a day, you know it affects the relationships that you have at home because sometimes you have a terrible boss, you can't take it out on them, so you're grumpy with everybody else in your life, right? There's this toll that work takes on us. We're in this series um, through the book of Daniel called Foreigners, and we're coming to this point about dealing with our life's work, whatever it is that we do. And Dave uh, Lombardo, who kicked off the series for us last week, said that the world we live in is a broken world. And I would say to you that part of the, the reality of Scripture tells us is that our work is actually broken as well. And that's why we feel what we feel. 
And he said to us last week that in a broken world, we are tempted to one of two extremes, either to assimilate, to just say, whatever, I'm not going to fight it, I just can't, can't beat him, just join him. I'm just going to adopt all of the ways this, this world works. Or to isolate and just go, I don't, I don't want to do anything uh, with this. I don't want anything to do with, um, with the work that we're uh, and, 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 the, and the, w- the way that the world is. I'm just going to plug my ears and whatever. Well, the same temptation is there for us in our workplace. That we can assimilate. And you may say, well, what does it mean to assimilate in, in the work culture? Well, the values that you and I have in the work culture that we live in and the world around us are these four things. And I talked to you about those uh, several months ago. Wealth, power, fame, beauty. These are the values that make the world go round. It's what drives the work in your workplace. These are the values. Now, for some of us, the only value that's operating in your workplace is wealth. Like, the only reason people are doing it is to get money. And so whether you're part of a union or not or whatever, you're trying to fight for wage increases or, like, no one wants to make less than they did last year. Everybody wants to make more, right? And so we're just this unconscious adoption that more is better, right? Duh. Does your boss come up to you and say, do you you want to make what you made, like, less, like, two years ago, or do you want to make more? No-brainer. I want more. Everybody does. Every workplace, in a sense, capitalism is driven on the accumulation, the increase of wealth. It is the bedrock value of capitalism that the world goes around wealth. But actually, I remember in a job I had a little while ago before I started this one, I remember sitting in a, in a, in a cube, and in our office, it was 80,000 square feet. Everybody was in cubes, including the CEO or whatever. You could just stand up and look around and see everybody. People still were on Facebook. I, I, I can't, like, really courageous. Like, everyone can see you. You know, but no problem, like very unashamed. Uh, this is the work I was in. I remember doing my work one day, and there's a conversation happening next to me. It was a privately owned company. It was over a billion dollars, but it was a privately owned company. And one of the owners of the company who was working in the company, and I hear him say to another executive who he'd recently hired, yes, this is our strategy. We hire mostly guys. We pay them lots of money, give them really important titles, and then fill the office with beautiful women so they don't want to go home at night. And I'm like, excuse me, did you say that out loud? At least we're being honest about it. That wealth, power, fame, beauty, all of it right there. These are the values of the, of the culture that we live in. And even if, say, say um, some of you have, have two jobs because you have a job and you're also raising kids, right? Or some of you are doing that full time. The values of wealth, power, fame, beauty, right, are the things that we are raising our kids towards. Getting a job, getting recognized, making sure they're not, you know, sort of uh, not getting passed over making sure they look right and have the right clothes and make sure they're smart enough and all that kind of stuff. Why? So they can have a good job, which is a good job is one that pays well. Why? So they can have financial security in the future, which is by any definition is wealth. Right? The values of the culture of the work that we live in is about wealth, power, fame, and beauty. And the threat of assimilation is just to say, yeah, that's why I'm here too. That's what I'm doing. On the other side... The threat is isolation, which is that work is a necessary evil. Work is a four-letter word. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like it. I hate it. I'm just going to come in and do my job, and that's it. They're not going to get one ounce of sweat from me. I don't care what anyone else is doing. This place is toxic. Or I don't believe in the purpose of what they're doing and all that kind of stuff. I don't even want to be here, so I'm just going to show up and go home. Isolation, which explains the other part of the survey that says that Canadians watch 80,000 hours of TV in their lifetime. 80,000 hours with sleep at over 100,000, work at 100,000, TV. I mean, I don't know what else, what's, what else are we doing. 
And in many ways, that's, the, that's the, how you cope, the isolation, saying, I don't want to deal with what's going on at work, so I'm going to just come home and binge watch, binge watch TV every night because I hate what I do during the day. I think those two numbers are related. And so these are the, the, the extremes that we are pulled in either direction. You might say, Vijay, you are really bumming us out. <laughs> to which I would say, welcome to work in Babylon. You work in Babylon. So do I. This is the environment. This is the world we live in. Babylon isn't, wasn't just an ancient city. It's actually you know, a place that's about 90 kilometers south of Baghdad now, but it's not called Babylon anymore. But it's not, it wasn't just a geographical place. Babylon and Scripture, if you read it, it's actually mentioned in the opening book of Scripture, and it's mentioned in the last book of Scripture. It's a metaphor. It's, it's, it wasn't just a literal city, which it was. It typified this world of alternate values of wealth, power, fame, and beauty. And it was a world that was constantly trying to suck people into it. That's why I love the scriptures. It explains so much about what life is really like. There's this thread, this place, this environment, this reality of Babylon that is running all the way through our history, uh, the history of humankind, and runs right through our day to day is this world that is constantly trying to suck us in and say, hey, live by these values, live by these things, accumulate wealth, fame, power, beauty. And so this story that actually takes place in ancient Babylon is not just about Daniel and his friends who were Israelites that actually brought, got brought into Babylon, but it's actually helpful for us to say, how do you live in a place like Babylon? How do you work in Babylon? See, uh, what Babylon would do is they would, they would uh, conquer other nations and they would go and they would destroy their cities and that's what they did to Jerusalem. They, they, they tore down the walls, they burned the temple or whatever and they would leave all of the people who were poor and uneducated and people that they think, well, these people are never, well, they'll, they'll never get together and rebuild this city so we can leave them there but we're going to take all of the elite, all of the royal family, all of the educated people and we're going to bring them into our world and brainwash them. And so Daniel and his friends, they, we kind of zoom in on this little story of these four people while this big story of kind of repatriation is going on. And they're saying, okay, we are going to brainwash and change these four guys, and they are going to become Babylonians. They are going to become like us. And so they put them through this three-year school of learning the language and learning the stories of how the world came to be according to them and learning the literature of all their writings and, and, and learning, obviously, magic arts and all of this stuff that they were teaching them to do with the hopes of saying, we are going to help them forget everything they've learned and they will be like one of us. And so it's actually a really relevant story for us to saying, okay, what do we do when we feel, yeah, the pressures and the temptation of wealth, power, fame, and beauty are so present all the time. How do we actually function differently in workplace? How do we not just assimilate and say, yeah, I'm just like everybody else, or escape and say, I hate this place, I want nothing to do with it, and I'm just going to try to live, and yet it's still taking a toll on my life. Is there another way to work in Babylon? And Daniel and his friends actually provide this beautiful picture for us, and not just what happened to them, but it's actually a bit of a roadmap for us to say, okay, well, what do we do if we were to find ourselves in a place like that? And interesting what we see with them is they participate and they don't participate. They participate and they don't participate. It's very instructive. They participate. So one, one of the things that, that Neil read for you is they go through this three-year program, and look what it says at the end that happened in Daniel 1.18. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official who was looking after these guys presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. So he was the king. 
The king talked with them, sort of testing them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, these, these four guys. So they entered the king's service, nobody equal to them. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. They were the best of the best. Like somehow these guys coming into this foreign place where they were indoctrinated and even brainwashed to learn everything, they did learn everything. And they were better than everyone else. Now, this is kind of a, like for those of you that grew up in the church, this is kind of a crazy verse. It says that they learned the other religions. They learned, like, they were better than all the other magicians and enchanters. So somewhere in there, commentators probably think they had to learn some of the magic arts and all of this stuff. Like, they were doing some of the other stuff that these Babylonians were doing that they would have been taught not to do, yet somehow they became experts in it and were better at it than everybody else. You might say, well, that's assimilation. And they just, they just, they just became one of them. They get brainwashed. But then we, we know that that's not what happened because there's this little story right before it starts to happen what Daniel does. Look at this, Daniel 1 verse 8. But Daniel resolved. Let's just stop there for a second. Daniel resolved. What, what's, what does it mean when you resolve? But Daniel resolved. Something inside him was like, I'm here, but wait. He resolved. He made a commitment. Something in his heart was saying, wait a second. He resolved. What did he resolve? not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. And as Neil read for us, so what happened was he says, look, the, the king, basically is these guys were brought in as the best of the best. They were given uh, the opportunity to eat at the king's table. Now, this was a great thing because food in those days, and if you, if you didn't have, if you, if you weren't wealthy, you didn't eat well. And so to eat from the king's table means you got everything the king got. So rich food, meats, wine, all of this stuff. And Daniel says to the king, and to, to actually not to the king, but just someone who's in charge of him, hey, can we just not eat that and we'll eat vegetables instead? And the guy's like, that's a really bad idea. You guys aren't going to look as good as the rest of them. He said, look, just give us, give us 10 days and we'll see what happens. Now, what's this about? All you vegans are getting excited right now. It's not about that, okay? Um, here's, here's why he said this. So the meat that comes from the king's table, the food that comes from the king's table, the meat would have been sacrificed to the idols and to the gods of Babylon. And Israel, as they worshipped God alone, didn't worship idols, it would have been taboo for them in those days to eat food that was sacrificed to idols. And we don't really live in that context. We go, well, whatever. But for them, it was a big deal. And so Daniel, in this place where he is being told, whatever you were told about God is false, These are that, your God is false, these are all the new ones, to dump out all your old rules, you can do all of this stuff now, everything has changed. In the middle, he's saying, wait a second, I know, I need to carve out for myself this little place of passive resistance. I need to carve out for myself and say, no, God... I may, be not, I may be a long way from home. The temple that I grew up in worshiping God may be destroyed, but God is still here with me. And I know he would not want me to do this, so I'm going to try to find this little place of passive resistance. And he does it gently, right? He's not like, he's not saying, heck, no, he's not, he's not like picketing outside the cafeteria with like pictures of, with PETA, you know, like saying, don't eat meat or whatever. It's not, it's very quiet. He's like gentle. He, he goes to the, not, not the king, not the guy below the king, but the guy below him and says, hey, listen, uh, can I not do this? And the guy says, well, this is a bad idea. Like, you're going to look. He says, okay, fine. Let's do a test, and if it doesn't work, I will submit to you. So he's very humble. He's quiet, but he's very intentional and subversive. And he looks for someone who he knows is going to have his back in his workplace, right? 
And so what happened? Well, at the end of the 10 days, Daniel 1, 15, 16, they looked healthier. This is him and his three friends. He got them to do it too. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine and they, to drink, and he gave them vegetables instead. At the end of the 10 days, they were jacked up. Well, if you read the Hebrew, it actually either, it says that their flesh was good, which either means they were jacked, or if you're a woman, it, it could mean that your, their skin was really nice. Like, they had nice skin. Okay, so it's hard to tell what the translators were coming from the Hebrew, but something happened, and it was a miracle, okay? That doesn't happen that fast in 10 days. God obviously did something, and all of a sudden, these guys are in a better shape, and they say, okay, fine, you can eat the vegetables. It's so interesting. It's this picture of participation and not participation. It's actually a picture for us of what does it mean? How do we work in Babylon? Is there another way than just assimilating and adopting all of the values of the place around us or just saying, I hate this place. I'm not going to do anything they tell me to. I'm not going to get anything from me. I'm just going to do what I'm supposed to do minimum to keep my job and go home. Is there some other way? I think this is so instructive for us. You have to know, I'm, I'm so, like this, this message, when we planned this series a couple months ago, this was the message I was like, God, you got to break through in us because I don't know about you, but like we live in a culture that is, like there's so many of us that feel so at odds with the work that we're doing, even if we love it. That on the one hand, as Christians, we are meant to be the most valuable people in our workplace. And let me say this to you. It doesn't matter what your title is. It doesn't matter whether you think anybody else notices what's going on. It doesn't matter whether you think, well, I don't have the influence for this or that, or I got passed over. Nobody can take away from you the opportunity to work hard. Nobody can rob you of the opportunity to say, whatever I have, I am going to give it my best day in, day out. Only you can take that away from you. Somebody else got promoted you got passed over, wage reduction, or you're now like on a temp list and you're, you get called in maybe once every five days, nobody can rob you of the opportunity to say, I'm going to make a dent today with my presence. They are going to feel my presence today. Nobody can rob you of that. Daniel and his friends somehow became the best. They applied themselves to everything they were being taught and somehow they got to the top. And you can tell by what they did on the other side. They weren't trying. They weren't just adopting the values of wealth, fame, power, beauty. But they said, we are here. We're going to be here. No one's going to rob us of the opportunity to do the best we can, to immerse ourselves. They became so well-versed in everything they were taught in a place that was foreign to them. They were the best of the best. But we know it wasn't their goal to just accumulate wealth or power of fame, be recognized because on the other side, they were saying, we're going to do things differently. And I believe this is what it means for us as Christians to say, I'm going to do everything I can to seize this opportunity, to honor my employer, to actually also where we know in Scripture where Paul says to the, to the church, hey, your boss is not your boss. God is your boss. So don't disrespect your boss by mailing it in. Don't disrespect your boss by mouthing off to them in front of them or just to everyone else behind closed doors. Don't disrespect your boss by complaining about your kids all the time because God is your boss. Every day you're working for him doesn't matter whatever, doesn't matter if everybody else you're serving is so ungrateful for what you're doing. This is where you are. Thrive. Throw yourself into it fully. And yet, 
find little ways, intentional, subversive ways to do things differently. See, your whole shop floor may be so toxic, but you want to do it differently such that when people walk into the 10-foot radius of where you work, the atmosphere changes. They feel it. They know it. And it may be the culture of greed and accumulation of wealth, but you are going to do things differently. You are going to let stewardship and generosity drive you all the time. That the more money you make, the more money you're going to give. And you know, statistically, the more money you make, the less you give percentage-wise. That, those are the statistics. It doesn't make any sense. You're going to say, you know what? I am not going to sit here and just accumulate, accumulate, and accumulate. I'm going to do things differently. Not to tell everyone I'm doing things differently, but I am going to passively resist the values of wealth, fame, power and beauty. That I may even pass up opportunities to advance because I know, you know what? I've got enough influence here, and I don't need more fame than I've got. Or you may thank God for not moving you up because you're like, you know what, God? I've got what I've got, and I'm still going to make a dent here. I'm still going to affect the people that are around me. I'm still going to do everything I can, but somehow I'm going to find this way to say, yes, I'm immersed. Yes, I'm doing everything I can. Yes, I'm working hard. Yes, I'm honoring my employer and what I've been asked to do or honoring the family that I'm called to do, but I am going to do things differently. I am not going to just raise my kids to try to be the smartest and the best looking and the most well-rounded. I'm going to resist the lie that I need to give them every opportunity in the world. We parents do crazy things now under the name of opportunities for our kids. We're going to say, you know what, I need to do things differently because I'm not just going to adopt these values of wealth, fame, power, beauty. It's this pathway for us. Say, I'm throwing myself in, but I'm going to find little ways to passively resist and do it differently. You might say, okay, right, how? How do I do that? You know what's so cool about this? Little verses, and I've, I've read this passage many, many times since I was a boy and never picked this up until this year. Verse 17 and verse 19, look at this. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding. This one's a bit mind-bending too. Wait, God gave them knowledge into the religion and the arts of the Babylonians? Like, why did he do that? God gave them success. They applied themselves, but God was the one who gave them knowledge. Remember, Daniel's probably the one writing this, right? So he's reflecting, going, yeah, we were rock stars, but God gave. We did not do this. We applied ourselves, but God gave. God gave them wisdom, understanding, which means every success that you have in the workplace is from God. You know, in the temptation to assimilate the wealth, fame, power, beauty, it's, it's the greatest temptation for those of us that have succeeded, right? Because the more success you have, the more you're drawn in. The more success you have, probably the more you're paid. The more success you have, the more opportunities and influence you're given. The more success you have, the more other people view you as an important person. And when all of that happens, the greater temptation is to just buy in and say, yeah, that's me. That's me. And one of the greatest ways we resist it is saying, God gave this to me. Everything I have is from him. He can shut me down tomorrow. Right? You recognize, wait, I can apply myself, but it's not up to me to make myself successful and to extend my influence. God gave, God gave. As you go into this and say, okay, God, I'm going to do whatever it is with what you've given me. God is the one who gives you more. But then this, it says, God caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. You know, he's trying to make his little passive resistance. God was the one that gave him someone who said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll help you in this. There are people in your workplace, in your environment, who will help you do things differently. God's put people around you. You say, oh, the system is this, the man is this, the environment's this. Yeah, but there's people around you that want to do things differently too, and they need someone like Daniel to say, hey, let's try something different. 
was Danny was the one that actually got his friends to do it with him. God has put people around you, even if you say your workplace is toxic, even if you say it's difficult, even if you say, you know what, even if it's not a toxic place, but I can't seem to move forward in what I need to, God has put people around you to say, I'm going to help you. You want to do things differently? I got people. Take a step of faith. Ask someone to help you. See, for Daniel and for us, right, every day is take your God to work day. Every day is take your God to work day. Listen, I know this. Where am I at here? 1046, I'm good. Some of you, right, you don't say this out loud, but you feel like actually God doesn't go with you into your workplace. You, you kind of feel like, oh, God's at church or he's in my Bible when I'm reading in my little prayer closet. But when I'm in here, or when I'm there, or when I'm in that floor, or when I'm in my classroom, or I went dealing with this politics here, and when I'm on a sales call, or I'm, you know, up to my neck and stuff that my kids are throwing, like God's not here. It's this mental thing that you have failed to see that he crosses the threshold of your workplace with you. Every day is take your God to work day. There is no place he cannot go. We are the ones that have confined him to spiritual locations. I believe that the key to this is actually saying, God, you're with me. You know, how did Daniel get that sense of like, let's do this little thing with the food and vegetables thing? I don't know. I'm guessing God just said, hey, Daniel, try this. We, all, we know later when you read in the book, the guy prayed three times a day. He was constantly seeking God's presence because he believed, hey, I may be a long way from home, but God's here. The temple may be destroyed, but God is with me. His presence is here. And so I believe this is key, that we change our mentality about our workplace and saying, every day is take my God to work day. And I don't mean going and standing and telling every people that, you know, if they don't love God, they're going to hell. I, you, you may, you, but you need to bring the presence of God near. And I've told you this before, and I remember when I was working and I, would, I got to the point where when I would talk with people and they would be sharing struggles with me or whatever, and we all have that, right, in our workplace. We all know people who are going through stuff. And then I got the courage to say, okay, well, you know what? I'll pray for you. And then a friend of mine said, well, why don't you pray with them? I'm like, what do you mean? Like, well, there. Okay. So this is my little passive resistance, right? My friend's telling me some stuff. And I said, hey, uh, you know, can I pray for you? He's like, sure. I'm like, now. O okay. How do we do this? I was like, well, let's go into a meeting room. Uh, so we go in. So we sit down. He's like, so now, now what happens? I'm like, I don't know. I'll pray out loud. And if you hear anything that, you know, something inside you feels like, oh, that's true, then you could just say, yeah, God, I want that. And I was like, for me, that was this little thing of like going, I, I want to do things differently. I remember my first job, I got there, and it's like they're burning the midnight oil every night. And people are coming to me at 7 o'clock saying, hey, what do you want for dinner? I'm like, dinner? Like, I'm going home. And the first year, I thought, you know what? I'm just going to do it. I'll do what everyone else does. And after a year, I'm like, I'm not doing this anymore. And if I get fired, I get fired. Instead, I got promoted, and people say, VJ, we'd like to work from you for, for you because you don't burn us out. And we used to have this rule, boss plus five minutes, right? Like you wait till your boss leaves, and then you wait five minutes, then you could leave. Because in case they forgot something, you come back, they want to see you. We're just like, I'm not living by these rules anymore. I wanted to work. I wanted to be the best. But I was like, God, says, you know what? You have other things that I want you to do. Your sum total of life isn't your work. So invest in some other things. For some of us, it may be working less. For others, it may be working more. I don't know where you're at. So don't say, well, VJ said I should leave early. I'm like, no. You may be the one mailing it in, okay? Come on. You need to know, what does this mean for me? But the point is that God is with me, and he needs to instruct me, and that he's with me to help me do this. So here's what I want you to do. And, and here's why. We say, well, how do I know God is with me? Well, because God went to work. You know, when Jesus became a man, he didn't go to the temple and live there. He was a blue-collar man. 
His father was a carpenter, so he was a carpenter. And most of Jesus' life, he worked. And I said this to you before. You think, you think, oh, God, this work is below me. You think Jesus didn't have the right to say that a few times? Like, God, really? Another table? That's what he did. And we know it was so ordinary. Like, there weren't even amazing tables or whatever because nobody wrote it down. It was just day in, day out, ordinary work. They didn't start writing anything down until he turned 30 because up to that point, he was just like everyone else. I'm like, oh, God, thank you. You know what it's like to be in my shoes. Your God went to work. He understands what it is to have his hands, to have his body used up, to serve other people, maybe to not get paid or have to chase people to pay them down. He understands what it's like to feel like his work is below them, to feel like, God, there must be more for me, to somehow try to be, to honor God and love God with what he was doing in his day and day out work. This is our God. That's why we say, my heart will sing no other name but Jesus. Not just God up there saying, hey, you shouldn't, you know, don't steal paper clips and try to, you know, whatever. God showed us what it's like to be present where people are, to work hard, and to honor God. So here's what I want you to do. I was thinking, what's the one thing that if we started to do would change everything? Because this is a big thing. It's like, well, what am I supposed to do? I want you to start to pray on purpose. Pray on purpose. This play on words. Because you have a purpose for where you've been sent. You may think, oh, I'm in this job because it's like, no, no. Remember Daniel writing this book? They're in the worst place on earth. God sent us. Daniel understood that God had sent them. Even though the king had conquered Jerusalem, the king and Babylon had done all these evil things, and everyone was doing stuff, and he was being told where to go, and he was basically becoming a slave and being brainwashed. He understood, wait, God is in control of this whole thing. So God has sent me wherever he sent me, whether I'm at home, whether I'm at work, whether I'm out of work right now and I'm looking for something, and you say, you know what, I've got to stop just looking for what's going to pay me the most amount of money because that's just adopting this other value of wealth. God, what do you have for me? Where are you sending me? Why have you sent me here? I'm going to pray on purpose. If you started to pray, and what I mean when I say, like, pray for your boss, don't pray that they'll get fired. Don't, don't pray that there'll be an electrical fire in your building when nobody's there so no one gets hurt, but on the weekend and then won't have. No, pray, right? Because we pray, help me, bless me prayers all the time. God, help me, bless me. Help me get this promotion. Help me, you know, help me find another job. And it's like, you can pray for all that stuff. But how about starting to pray where you are? How about starting to pray and say, God, there are people in this workplace whose lives are so broken. There are people here who are contemplating divorcing their spouse. There are people here contemplating taking their life next week. There are people here who are going through financial hardship. There are people whose mother is battling cancer. There are people, and you know what? I need to know. I need to pray for them, with them. God, there is a purpose. Our company's running up against stuff and we kind of keep doing the same old thing and I don't like our products. I feel like they should be better. I feel like we should be better the way we treat our customers. You know, our, our guest experience scores are low. God, help us pray into the place where you're going. Pray with a purpose. God, you've sent me here. Even if I'm the only one praying for this company, I'm gonna pray for this company. If you're grounded right now, no job, pray with a purpose. God, prepare the next place. Don't just make it a good job. Make it a place where people need Make it a place where people need you to begin to pray. I guarantee you, and whatever your commute is, whether it's 10 minutes or 10 hours or as you're going in, whatever that place is, start to pray as you go into work. Pray as you come out of work. It will change you. Even if the circumstances don't change, things will change because you're different. Now, why would you do this? <laughs> this is hard, right? Sometimes easier just to do the other stuff we talked about. This is the last verse at the end of that section. I don't think it's on the screen. It says this, and if you're not paying attention, you'd miss it. Verse 21, Daniel remained there, that was Babylon, until the first year of King Cyrus. 
The first year of King Cyrus. Well, this was Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Then Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Then Darius, king of Persia, as Persia conquered Babylon. Then Cyrus. Daniel was a survivor. He outlasted four of the most powerful kings that have ever ruled in earth. Babylon's still one of the most powerful kingdoms ever. He outlasted two empires and four kings. Isn't that what we want in our work? We want to survive. We want to have staying power. He was this little teenage Jew brought from a place that, and, was, and was going to be obliterated. His memory, his name, he was going to be just made to look like everyone else, a minion. And somehow he outlasted four of the most powerful leaders the world has ever known. It's staying power. But he didn't just survive. He thrived. He actually changed two nations, two cultures from the inside out. He changed Babylon. He changed the culture of his own people who were living far from him. Friends, there is no one who can cap the upside of what could happen in your life, in your workplace, if you begin to say, okay, God, let me lean in as hard as I can and let you do the miracles that I can't do for myself. And let me find these little ways to passively resist being sucked into money, fame, power, and beauty. It is impossible for us, and yet God has been doing the impossible over and over and over again. Let me pray for you as the band comes up to lead us. Lord God, I thank you so much that you have given us a calling and a purpose. And sometimes we get glimpses of it and we feel so at home in it. And yet many times we feel like, man, I'm struggling. I don't feel like I don't fit. This feels foreign to me. I thank you that you came and walked and worked in our shoes. You understand our day in and day out life. Jesus, for every person in this room, bless them with a new awareness of your presence as they cross the threshold of their workplace. For some, it's as soon as their feet hit the floor, they're on. For others, it's a commute. For others, it's a shop floor, a classroom, a restaurant, wherever it is, God. For those who are waiting for work, God, help us to remember that you are with us and you are preparing a place for us. You are sending us out to survive and to thrive. And that's why it's in your son's name that we ask these things and pray. Amen.